I'll, I'll tell you this. If some of you open up and you look at the headline, I'll, I'll tell you this. This is not a post-election end times connection sermon, okay? By any means. I'm not here to tell you that it's tomorrow or anything like that, okay? We are going to be um, taking a look at um, some end times prediction, but it's in no way associated with that. We'll take care of the election tonight at prayer. Amen? Everyone got a Bible? All right, so I'll actually begin by saying that the world prefers destruction, and then Jesus provides deliverance. See, I want to start with the end because some of you are just going to nod off and be bored the whole time and think about football and lunch and all that other stuff. So now you cannot say that you didn't get the big idea of the whole sermon. Like, I just didn't get it. It wasn't very clear. I just told you, okay? So that's the hook is the end. I just gave away the ending, right? You just showed up at a movie, showed you the last scene. Okay, now we're going to start at the beginning. All right, but the world prefers destruction, see that everywhere. The world prefers destruction. And Jesus and only Jesus provides deliverance. Okay? So Mark 13, but I actually want to back up just a little bit. Jesus is in his ministry. And we've been studying through the book of Mark for like 15 months at the college ministry. Just creeping through the gospel. Okay? And it's an amazing way to go. This is only the second book I've actually taught. I'm a young Bible preacher. Right? And when the Holy Spirit moved on me in service one time... It says, you're going to preach Mark next. After 1 John, I was like, no way. There is a lot of red text. That means it's really important. Okay, it means if you get it wrong, right, there's problems. Okay, but we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And this is like the Cliff Notes gospel, right? This is the fast-paced one immediately. It was written for the Roman mindset. Okay, so John Mark, under the influence of the Apostle Peter, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to a Roman audience that cares not about genealogy, not about soaring theology. They care about what Jesus did. Very simply, they're type A, militant culture. What did Jesus do? What happened? What was accomplished? And so John Mark is just penning essentially kind of like the bullet points, the thrust of everything that Jesus did. So it's a fast pace. You see the word immediately over and over and over and over in the gospel of Mark. Okay, and it's written for that mindset that says, what did Jesus do as a servant of the people? This is about Jesus the servant. It's a great gospel too. It's just, you know, it opens up with John the Baptist meandering in the wilderness with like a fur belt, right? And then baptizes Jesus. Jesus gets kicked off into the wilderness, okay? Shows up on the scene, starts the whole public ministry with repent. Like it just kicks off, it just starts and it's just fast paced from there. So I love the gospel of Mark because it's just, there's, there's no way around it. It's just fast-paced. This is Jesus the servant. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's starting to stir things up. This is probably not the first time he was in Jerusalem. He was a, a good God-fearing Jew, of course. right? He lived a life of service as a young Jewish boy. He likely traveled there for feasts and celebrations. But this time, of course, we know it was different. This was in fulfillment of Scripture, as everything that he did was. Okay, so Jesus has come to Israel, or he's come to Jerusalem. He's come in on a donkey, celebrated. But then he starts making a ruckus. Right? See, the world prefers destruction, and Jesus is here to provide deliverance. So before we actually get into Mark 13, let's just back up like two paragraphs, if you can call them that. So what just happened? Jesus is in the temple teaching. He's in the temple teaching. And he has the audacity in front of everyone 
to say that your religious leaders are whack. Your religious leaders are messed up, and they were. Pharisee means what? Separated one. Not to be confused with holy, which means set apart. Very different concepts, okay? Set apart as Christians doesn't mean we're separated as Christians, all right? We don't just come here on Sundays, talk and chat and get hyped up on donuts and sugar and then go home, okay? And then just try to make it back on Sunday. The ministry is out there. This is where the equipping takes place. All right? So Jesus comes in, he starts immediately, and the Pharisees and the scribes are there. It's not like he's got a private Bible study where he's ripping on the religious folks. They're there in the room. And he's saying, hey, the guys in the back and the man dresses are leading you astray. They're leading you astray. Because contrary to, to cultural belief that hypocrite means you set a standard and miss it, that's just called being a sinner. Being a hypocrite in the Bible is someone that knows the truth and leads you away from it. So Jesus has the audacity to show up at church and denounce the religious leaders that are there in his presence. And then he observes the tithing. Right? So he observes the tithing and guys come up and they've, they've got songs and gestures and, and loud remarks and groaning and pains. Right, All the rich people getting up there, oh, right, and they rode up in their Lexus, right? Oh, I'm tithing. Okay, not very impressive at all. Okay, and then the widow does what? She has two mites to her name. The Bible says she gave all that she had. You know what she had when she gave away all? She had nothing. Absolutely nothing. So Jesus is unraveling the established religious leadership in the nation, blowing people's mind. They're like, oh my goodness, we've been following these guys. Jesus is unraveling this established leadership. And then what he's unraveling in his teaching of the widow that gives her two mites is that the material blessing that was long associated with the prosperity of Israel was unraveling before their eyes. Because that's steeped in Old Testament history is that God actually promised material possessions to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, as a means by which he was going to expand a nation that would declare who he was to the world. All right, so material possessions were actually gifted to Israel by God for his glory. But what happens when God starts giving us blessings? What happens? We start to actually think that it's in return for something we've done as opposed to a test for something you should do in the future. See, a lot of us get a really sweet paycheck or we get a pay raise. We start thinking, see, clearly God is blessing me because I've been really, really awesome. That's actually not what's happening. God is saying, here's more resources to do more for my kingdom. The test begins now. And then he wants to see what you do with that. He's not rewarding you for good deeds. Are you kidding me? That's the anti-gospel. He's saying, here's a test for what is to come. The Bible says that God chastens those he loves. That doesn't mean he's, he's inflicting punishment upon you. It means that he's disciplining you for the future. He's not doing anything in response to what you've done. He's providing for you for what you will do for his name. All right, so this is unraveling before the Jews' eyes, and the disciples have to be blown away. They're like, the there goes the religious establishment. Holy smokes. Okay, here's this idea that, that Israel is being blessed with material possessions, right? And that's a part of our covenant with God that shows that we're in his will. That's unraveling because the lady has nothing and she's going to heaven. Meanwhile, all the, all the guys rolling up in beamers are questionable at best. Do you see how it's all starting to unravel? 
Jesus is unraveling preconceived notions. And then he does this. And then Mark 13 comes. And look what he predicts. If you'll read with me. Not out loud. Then as he went out of the temple. So he gets done teaching, preaching, observing the widow and her two mites. And then they come out of the temple. And one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Okay? So the disciples, for the disciples, this is great. For the, I mean, this is Jerusalem. These guys were fishermen. Okay? Other tradesmen, crafts. They were in Jerusalem with a rabbi. This is the peak of their career thus far. And they're figuring it's going to get even more awesome. Because he's going to come in and reign. Institute God's new kingdom. And they're going to be right there. Right? That's why all the bickering about who's the greatest. Who, you know, who's going to be your chief of staff? Who's going to be VP? That whole thing. Right? So they come out and they're looking around. They're like, and they're just in the flesh. They're just like, Jesus, check out this city. This is pretty cool. Like, yeah, the whole like tearing down the religious establishment and talking about who's going to heaven. That's cool and all. But check out the stuff they've built. Right? Bobbles and trinkets. Eh, you know, right? Just excited. And it's okay. It's okay. Man builds great things. Okay? I'm not harping on technology and innovation. All right? But so they come out and they're just looking like, this is, this is amazing. And they're in the temple. Right? They come out of the temple. And Jesus answered them and said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, here's the danger in what I'm going to try to do. And I'm going to fail. Before you, I will fail. Because there is no way I can possibly convey to you the gravity of what that means to a Jew in that day. No possible way. Right? Preachers will try, be like, oh, this is like the White House. And some of them are like, ah, bring the whole thing down. Who cares? Right? This is not Buckingham Palace in London. This isn't Mecca in Saudi Arabia. I, I, we can't even begin to fathom how shocking this sort of unraveling is for the modern Jew, for the Jew at that time, for the ancient Jew, okay? The, we, we know that the temple is what? That is where God established his presence among his people. I mean, this is, this is you know, there's three epochs in human history. There's Judaism, what Luke calls the time of the Gentiles, and the second coming. That's it. That's all of human history. Three major epochs. Right? And this was the central theme. This was the central point. This was the established coming together, the crux of that first epoch. It's crazy. The temple was immaculate. And this is the second temple. Okay, so God had blessed the, the, the nation of Israel with material possessions, one of which is to guys like David and Solomon, who then Solomon built the temple, dedicated it to God. It came down. Now it's being resurrected, rebuilt over 80 years. That's where they are. It wasn't even done yet when this happened. And so the, the temple is God's presence among his people. And, and the historicity of it's amazing. Some estimates, maybe by conservative estimates, 500 yards long. Okay, that's a football field times five. Okay, 500 yards long, 400 yards wide. Okay. The retaining wall that you can actually, if you've gone to Israel as I have, you can actually go underneath to some of the tunnels and actually see some of the original infrastructure 
Okay, and you can see that the blocks they used for the retaining wall alone were the size of railroad cars. Modern technology has no understanding of how they did that. None. They didn't have cranes. In fact, our modern technology would struggle with some of those. No understand. We don't know. Not sure. People are like, what's the answer? No clue. Amazing. God saw fit and it happened. Okay. Amazing. That's the retaining wall alone. Right? It was covered, the temple was covered in gold plates. Now, this is before sunglasses. Imagine that, okay? Imagine you're walking up and the sun hits it just right. Some of us drive on the freeway in the morning, you're like, oh my goodness, that's off blacktop for crying out loud, right? It's just like, oh, I'm blinded. Imagine the whole thing in gold plates. Amazing. And where it wasn't covered in gold plates, it was marble so white that from a distance, people believed it was snow. They're like, where are we? The Middle East. What month is it? August? What is that? I don't know. I think it's snow. So white, so grand, so amazing. But this was God's established presence among God's established people. And Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to come down. It's unraveling before them and it's shocking. I can't make it more shocking for us. 9-11, not as shocking. Horrific and evil and disgusting, not nearly as shocking. And think of what we went through when that happened, 3,500 miles away, right? We were aghast. Imagine the people that saw this as the presence of God. Sorry to tell you, the Twin Towers weren't the presence of God. It's amazing. We lost souls. It was a, a, a great inspiration, yeah, but it wasn't the temple, not to the Jews, right? And so the temple is where the Jews would come for feasts and celebrations, right? And to offer sacrifices to God. This is where priests mediated between the people and God and offered sacrifices for the atonement of sin. Again, we hear that and we just flippantly kind of breeze through. Heard this before, right? But think about that. There was a constant flow of blood coming from the temple. People are wicked. It just had to flow all day long. This is where sin was being atoned for. And Jesus says, it's all going to come down. It's all going to come down. And so we've got this massive rebuilding. This is what's known as the Herodian temple. Okay, the time of Herod. Some stats took over 80 years. Okay, over 80 years. It wasn't even completed yet. Tremendously significant. But not only was the building amazing, the location was critical. What do we know about the location? This is where, again, try to frame this as, a, as an ancient Jew. When everything, when, when everything you've understood about God is essentially going to be destroyed before your very eyes. Not only the building, which represented where God lived and resided among his people, but this sacred ground where the temple resided. Which is where what? Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abram, right? We all know the story. It's good to rehash it because it's true, okay? Can't have too much truth in your life these days, okay? So Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant. God enters into a covenant. We didn't enter into a covenant with God. God enters into a covenant with us, with the nation of Israel, with Abram, and says you will have descendants, plural, descendants. Abram's like, well, I got one That's not descendants. That's not many descendants. 
okay? Genesis 16, Genesis 16, then we see his wife Sarai is what? Childless, barren at this point. They're getting old, okay? God says, then in 17, he institutes a sign of this covenant. God promises you're gonna have descendants, but I got a wife that can't have kids. And in 17, he says, there will be a sign of the covenant that's circumcision. God always gives us a sign of the covenant, okay? Now it's under baptism. The sign of his covenant is baptism. To them, it was circumcision, okay? So God institutes that, changes some names around because God can do that, right? Says, Abram is now Abraham, Sarai is now Sarah, which means princess, because from her kings would come. All right? And then what happens, jump down to Genesis 22, and then it gets kind of crazy. So then God wants to test this faith that Abraham has in this covenant. Because he does that, he tests us on the covenant into which we've entered with him. It's not just like there's a covenant, everything's cool now. No, there's testing, there's chastening, there's disciplining. It happens. So in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So we see they go off. Now, track with me some of the facts here. It's going somewhere. It's pointing somewhere or to someone, okay? They take off on a donkey to the land of Moriah. They get there, and after three days... Abraham, I think they've got two guys there that went with them, traveled in fours. Abraham said, stay here. I'm going to take my son up to the altar. So he loads up Isaac with some wood. Okay? And so Isaac, we're going to head up to that altar there, that sacrificial altar. Now imagine Isaac. Cool. Got the wood. It says that dad's got the fire and the knife. Okay, with kindling and stones and, and a knife. Okay, cool. All right, let's go. He's walking up. Isaac is thinking, Dad, I mean, the view is beautiful. I see you're here with me. I see you got fire and knife, and I got wood. Where's the animal? Just, just a small detail, Dad. Where's the sacrificial animal? And Abraham says, like Dad, speaks in code, right? Like a Dad speaks in code, God's going to provide one. Isaac, I know where this is headed. And he continues. Isaac doesn't flee, he doesn't run, he doesn't freak out. And he goes, right? He binds him, he straps him, he lays him on the altar. He goes to slaughter his son. He goes to dismember his son. He goes to burn his son. And then the Bible says, an angel of the Lord. Now, not all theologians agree on this. I'm in the camp that does believe that's Jesus. An angel of the Lord, specific. Jesus shows up, says, whoa. And they provide a ram. Right? So this is the most epic location for the Jews. This is where this entire scene has gone down. And of course, we know that was simply even just that event and the temple itself are prefigurations of Christ. Okay? They were both firstborn sons that could only be born a part, uh, as a part of a miracle. Okay? They both rode in on a donkey. They both carried the wood of their sacrifice. And then Isaac, figuratively, and Jesus, literally, were brought back from the dead. And so this amazing location, this amazing building, in all its glory and all its splendor before the nation of God is about to be destroyed. Because we don't worship a place anymore, we worship a person. 
We don't worship a place. We worship the person of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't worship a place. We don't worship the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't worship a mountain. We worship the God-man. We don't worship a place. We worship the person. We don't worship, we don't need to enter into a temple to be with God. God enters into us and makes us a temple. That's the beginning of the whole gospel is that God enters into a covenant with his people. Created in his image we are. And, but Jesus says this entire structure on this location, as amazing as it may be, is about to be destroyed. And that's shocking to them. Absolutely shocking. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. So Jesus gets done saying, look, all these stones are going to come down. It's no longer about the stones you have built. It's about the cornerstone that I will be. The rock of the church. And then he says some things are going to happen. Okay, Jesus is dealing in this dual perspective. Okay, he often does this. He says, look, I'm going to teach you about something in the very near future and into the distant as well. Okay, Jesus is consistently operating in sort of three modes of communication. He has foreknowledge, which means he knows the future. Okay, God sits on top of time, not just like actual time, even just the concept of time like this. He sees the beginning, the end, underneath, on top, everything. He knows it because he's seen it in some. Okay, so Jesus knows the future. Sometimes he tells us about the future. That's prophecy, right? And then in Jesus, all things that he says will be made manifest. I'm gonna show you that what Jesus said is absolutely true. Even if, you're, even if you're separated from that, that walk with Christ right now, you need to know that everything he has said has come true and or will. It's historically perfect. It's accurate. I'll even give you modern examples, let alone ancient examples. It's been thousands of years. There's gonna be way more than my lists. But Jesus says, first things first, this temple's gonna come down, okay? Judaism is, in, is about to be in an active state of fulfillment, this is crazy to say, it's crazy to hear, no crazier than the temple's coming down. There is no need for Judaism. <gasps> That's kind of mean and insensitive. So is the cross because it was the fulfillment of Judaism. We are to love our Jewish friends, love on them, minister to them, be servants of them, but know that they're living in an ancient mindset that has no completion, no fulfillment. We should mourn for them. We should, again, minister. Turn that mourning to ministering for crying out loud. Right? It's fulfilled. Judaism is complete. Now we're in the time of the Gentiles. So Jesus says, first and foremost, in the very near future, the temple's gonna come down. And for people that held that up as an idol, that was shocking. I'm wondering 
I'm wondering, knowing that the world prefers destruction and Jesus provides deliverance, I'm wondering what in our lives will be destroyed by the world that will cause for mourn. That will be cause for mourn. That's the simplest way to identify an idol. What if tomorrow when you woke up, it was gone? Would you mourn? I'm not saying mourning is wrong. I'm not saying the destruction of whatever you're thinking about is good. But if you woke up tomorrow and a child was destroyed by the earth, would it be cause for mourn? Yes, of course. That's the simplest way, though, for us to begin to identify that which is idols in our lives. If you wake up tomorrow and your business is gone, that which you've esteemed and built and resurrected, right? Some of you have gone through bankruptcy and then brought it back. I'm dealing with it right now. I have a business on the side apart from my main job. I don't know where it's going to go in the next year. I don't know if it can survive anymore. We've been in the red for too long. Okay? And so what I'm starting to realize is that if I wake up tomorrow and it's gone, and I'm mourning, that simply identifies an idol in my life. Because as, as sad as it is to say, everything else, everything on earth, apart from the treasures that we're storing up in heaven, are frivolous. They are. They absolutely are. The temple worship at this point is frivolous. Don't come here and temple worship. Don't. Please. Don't come here for the building and the snacks and the sort of weird people that are nice to you on Sundays, right? Myself included. Don't come for temple worship. Pastor Rob doesn't want that. Pastor Brett doesn't want that. We don't want temple worshipers. We want Jesus followers. People that come here to be equipped for the brutality of the real world, that prefers destruction, to then communicate to them that only Jesus can offer deliverance. So Jesus says, the temple's gonna be destroyed and people will come to deceive. You see, because what's happening is that the religious establishment is out the window. This idea that God is a covenant only with Israel is out the window. The temple is coming down. It's no longer about a place and the people who run it. It's about Jesus who runs your life. And that will be room for evil to slip in. And false teachers and deceivers. Because that's when they know. Because now religion isn't about that building, which is way harder to take down, than it is just your belief in a teacher, your belief in God. So deception comes in. The world loves deception. It's very easy. It's very easy. Okay, and we know the temple did come down, and how do the Romans do it? They simply cut off all supply to Jerusalem. Right? They just isolated it. They just isolated it. That's why our friends, that's why our brothers and sisters in Christ who are just sort of, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, so I don't go to church, that sort of thing. They need to be in fellowship because right now they're isolated. All the source from God through his people is being cut off. And that's when the soul, that's when Israel, Jerusalem, would begin to starve and implode on itself. And then it's easy. You cut off the influence of fellowship today, oh, those people are easy pickings. That's what we call in the business world low-hanging fruit. People that are just right there, you're ready to make that move immediately. That's your target market, right? Cut off. Deception comes in. So Jesus is warning about the deception that's sure to arise. So he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. 
So I've got a list. I'm a fan of lists. College guys and girls like lists, so I bring lists. All right, so Joseph Smith, founder of the Latter-day Saints, said that by the end of his time, the end times would come. Okay, these are people that are prophesying that they know the end of time, which we know later in this chapter is not true. No one does. If they say that, they're a heretic. <gasps> Ooh, that's kind of shy. We've got people that got pretty good fancy stuff with the math. Heretics. Read the Bible. You don't know. It's been the end time since the beginning. Okay? We're just on day like four billion something of the end times. Okay? So in terms of these knowing the end times and trying to put themselves on par with Jesus, guys like Joseph Smith, the Latter-day Saints, said by the conclusion of his lifetime, the world would end. Worked out well for him. Okay. <laughs> now the next one, I have to be cautious. Ellen White, who is a co-founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now we need to know, we have a Seventh-day Adventist church that meets here. You guys need to know that this is, by, by all accounts, a, a confused movement. There are many people that are saved in the, seven, in the SDAs. Some are not. It's just like everything else, okay? Some people here right now are saved. Some people aren't. It's not shocking. It's not a complete heresy. It's sort of group by group. You have to take a look at the SDAs group by group, okay, and sort of see where their worship truly resides, how far off they've gone, okay, from the Bible. But Ellen White, who was the co-founder of the SDA, said she had multiple, multiple, multiple end-of-the-world predictions, They were all wrong, clearly. The Watchtower, which is the organization that heads the Jehovah's Witnesses, sort of the literature and the push and the theology that comes out of the, um, I call them the J-dubs, said that Jesus would return in 1914, which I think is, that's gone. Um, And then there were nine predictions after that, okay? None have come true. All right, Louis Farrakhan from the Nation of Islam in 1991 said the War of Armageddon was in the Middle East, that the Gulf War was the War of Armageddon. Okay, lasted all of 100 hours, okay? Lasted all of 100 hours, not true. Harold Camping, we know this guy, right? Brilliant modern theologian, okay? He predicted in 1994, and then again last year, he predicted the end of the world didn't come true, and then he just sort of wiggles his way and continues apparently having people show up at his church, which is mind-boggling. All right, and then we all know what? According to the Mayans, next month is it, okay? So, I... Of all things that I'm sure of, I'm pretty sure if, none of us know, but I do know that God's not going to do it on that day. That's the only thing. I, he's like, I'm not going to prove those guys right, okay? <laughs> he's just not in the business of doing that, all right? Next month, not, hey, it could be tomorrow, actually, though. And that would still prove the Mayans wrong, right? So just sit on that on lunch, you know, think about that. All right, but we do know, and again, whenever you get into this eschatology stuff, and I'm not an eschatology buff at all. That's why when, when God gave me, hey, go back to Mark 13 for the Sunday morning, I'm like, crazy. Are you kidding me? That's my least favorite chapter of all of them, the end time stuff, okay? But what I'm encouraged in is that we do know truths for sure, like the second coming is going to happen. Jesus is going to return, okay? We will get resurrected bodies. So like, well, when exactly? You figure it out. Go read books, okay? You try to come up with your own. I'm not sure, and I'm okay with that right now. Okay, but what we do know is Jesus is coming back. We know that right now, as Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus is actively reconciling all things to himself. For some of us, for some of us, for me, for a long time, politics was an idol. Politics was an idol. For some of you, you were mortified on Tuesday. Mortified. Right? Some people still are. Mortified. 
I would say that's because you're elevating politics above its station in life. You're mortified. You don't, it, it's tough for us to see how that is actually being used for the reconciling of all things on earth and in heaven to Jesus. As if we haven't seen this in the past. As if Israel didn't ask for a king. Right? And God sighed and said, go for it. They got him and then they became under the heavy burden of conscription and taxation. Jesus gives us often what we want. God often gives us what we ask for. But know this, apart from how much we think we're controlling our destiny, Jesus is actively reconciling all things to himself. It's all being reconciled to him. All right, and then in, in, in continuing down this thought, I've got a, a sweet list of people that think they're in some form Jesus, okay? Arnold Potter, Arnold Potter in the 1800s, this is a guy that broke off from the LDS movement, sort of derivative of the Latter-day Saints movement. Okay, he claimed that Jesus' spirit entered him and that he became Potter Christ. There's probably a Harry Potter joke in there somewhere. Not sure. Bahula, which was at the end of the 19th century, this is the guy that founded the Baha'i faith. This guy shot for the stars, right? If you're going to go down in flames, okay, you might as well go this route. He believed that he was the consummation of all religions, just all of them combined, he was the epitome. He was actually the crux of all religion. I mean, at least the guy was ambitious, right? He's like, forget all the bickering. I'm everything. I'm amazing, right? You got Jim Jones in the 70s. You guys remember People's Temple? I don't. I wasn't born then, but. So this guy, he had a sort of a weird, perverse way of thinking. He sort of wanted to combine some of the major thoughts, apparently. Kind of wanted to hit all ends of the spectrum, um, he believed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, Buddha, and Lenin. I don't know what that looks like. Like a servant, overweight Marxist. I don't know, like government, I don't know how he combined those two. But we do know that he organized the mass murder and suicide in Jonestown. We got Marshall Applewhite in the 90s, Heaven's Gate. Remember Heaven's Gate? Said he was Jesus, then he in fulfillment of scripture, organized a mass murder, right? So that their souls would be taken up by a spaceship. Okay, sci-fi stuff, sci-fi stuff. You got David Koresh in the 90s. Man, the 90s were not as great as people remember, right? David Koresh in the 90s, Branch Davidians. Remember this? Branch Davidians said he was the son, the lamb of God, okay? Burned his Waco, Texas compound, all right? Killing men, women, children. Sound like Jesus? No. You got Sung Myung Moon, recently died, just in September, I believe, okay? Said that he was the second coming of Jesus. I don't know what his people are doing these days, to be honest. Might want to send him an email. And then currently, right now, again, all this is to simply show you that what Jesus predicted is true, just as much as it was in the early days after his death as it is now. This is continuing. Deception is continuing. Right? There's a group, I believe the translation goes to Growing in Grace. I think it's down in Florida. Currently, right now, a man by the name of Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, who first claimed that he was the incarnation of the Apostle Paul, and then apparently believed he deserved a promotion. A couple years later, decided he was the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I say this mockingly, but this is devastating. Absolutely devastating. Right? Absolutely devastating that people are falling for this. 
The world is preferring destruction and will do anything. They will even mimic the one who delivers in order to maintain their preference for destruction. And it's actively going on. Jesus' words, are they are true. Historically true. It's happening now. If you're not down with all the theology, you have to at least submit to the historicity of the Bible. At least. Because nothing has been proven wrong. Nothing. And that's crazy. In fact, the more they uncover with archaeology, the less they talk about it. You know why? Because it simply proves the Bible. Every time. Every time. Even like a guy came from Jericho or he went to Jericho. (gasps) Contradiction in scripture. And then what did we uncover? Two Jerichos. Crazy. Right? So the guy that saw him coming from Jericho was talking about the old Jericho. The one talking about going to Jericho was the new Jericho. Amazing. There are two Jerichos. The more they find out, the less the world actually wants to talk about it because they prefer destruction over deliverance. And so you've got these list of guys that are just exactly what Jesus was predicting. Exactly. So when tragedies, trials, tribulations unfold, false teachers will arise. False teachers will arise. Know that you Uh, We'll get to that. Sorry. That's a note later. You got to get there in the passage. Okay. For I am he and will deceive many. Okay. We've seen this. This is true. It just happened. Okay. It's still happening. Verse eight. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Some of your translations say birth pains. Why on earth would he call it birth pains? What's being birthed right now? A new earth. Again, the gospel goes like this. The gospel says that we are created in God's image, the creation. If you don't start there, there's a lot of confusion. You show up to church, it's like, you're a sinner. Jesus fixed it. Go home. People are like, do I have to go to work tomorrow? Because it sounds like it's done, right? What are we doing? Okay? It's not the complete gospel. The complete gospel starts in creation, that we were created in his image. It explains a lot of things. Why do, why do non-Christians do good things? Because they were creating God's image. Continual worshipers with eternity in their heart, with the law of God on their heart. Then you say, well, then why do Christians do bad things? Oh, second chapter, that's the fall. Because we're all sinful. We've all fallen short. Okay, so then Jesus comes in because only innocent blood, only pure blood can atone for all sins, past, present, and future. Jesus dies on the cross, the the crux of all history. Even if you're a non-Christian and you believe it's 2013, it's somewhere in your head that something happened then. Or else you just call it year 6,000 or something like that, okay? Something happened, you have to identify that. It's in our everyday vernacular. But then there comes this fourth chapter, the one that we're in right now, and it's the one least talked about in the church. Right? So we're like, oh, you're created, you fell, Jesus fixed it, and he's coming back. Well, what do we do now? Why are there birth pains? Jesus, as Colossians 1.20 says, is actively reconciling all things to himself for his glory, not for ours. He is actively reconciling the earth because he's going to come back and restore another one. Contrary to popular belief, heaven isn't a place that we go away from and then the earth just like disintegrates. We don't just go away to heaven and then stay away. We go away to heaven, we come back in resurrected bodies and he restores a new earth, a refined earth. 
Not one that's been destroyed, one that's been renewed. And creation, he's saying, is groaning, as it says in Romans. Wars, famines, droughts. This is the earth groaning for reconciliation to God. Groaning. This is us trying to figure it out right now because we're sinful and we're fallen and we're actively pursuing destruction rather than deliverance. And so the world is being reconciled as people are being reconciled to God. And it's the, it's the beginning of birth pains. It has to happen. I've been to war. I've seen war. It's not pretty. I was in the Marine Corps. I saw the front ends of it. It's not pretty. It's horrible. It's evil. But it is a part in that brokenness. You can see the gospel. You can see people pursuing destruction or deliverance. We got to go. My time is short. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. In every tragedy, there's opportunity. In every tragedy, there's opportunity. Christian, in every tragedy, there's opportunity. When your idols have been torn down in front of you, there's opportunity. Because we place our security in the things of the world, in buildings and in funds and in events and in hobbies and in business and in career. And then maybe you wake up and it's gone. But there is opportunity in tragedy to preach the gospel. And of course, you have to know the gospel before you can preach it. Okay? When Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he gives us three outlines for discipleship when he's about to return to heaven. He says, go, preach, and baptize. That's it. Like, I really would like a shorter list. It's like month-long seminars on discipleship. Let's just look at Jesus. Go, preach, and baptize. Well, that sounds really simplistic. Go, preach, and baptize. What else you want me to say? Okay. But in order to preach, you have to know. You have to know that the gospel is from creation to consummation. You can't go in and say, you suck, and Jesus fixed it. Would you like to come to church with me? Okay. And, and contrary to popular belief, right now, every single one of us, whether you're a believer or not a believer, I'm here to tell you, I know this for sure, you are preaching a gospel. You are preaching a gospel. Whether or not it's the gospel of Jesus Christ is up to you. But you are preaching a gospel. Right? You read these stories of missionaries that go deep, deep into the forest, deep into the tribes. I'm reading through the book Radical right now by David Platt. Raise your hand if you've read that book and it completely ruined your life like it did me too. I know, I realize it. I'm ready to sell all my stuff and move to Africa, okay? Um, but you are preaching the gospel. You start reading these stories of missionaries going deep into countries that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never, never. They sit down, it's like, I'm here to tell you about Jesus for the first time. The guy says, great, cool. Don't know what that means, but I'm down with it. Do you want a drink? Awesome, here's a Coke. Oh, see, someone got a gospel through to those people. And that gospel is materialism and wealth. That, that, a, comp, that a, a soda company was able to penetrate that tribe before a Christian? Amazing. Sad and amazing. You will preach a gospel. You have every one of us. Pastor Rob imparted this to me early on. He said, your most potent ministry will be a ministry of observation. 
You are actively right now. So all of you that are like, well, I'm not really in the ministry. I've sort of, I'm really gifted in the business world. That's where you just want to kind of step back and like, I'm cool with the Sunday mornings and, and that sort of thing. You need to know you're preaching a gospel where you are, whether or not it's the one of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure. But you are preaching one. You have a ministry of observation. People are watching you. And we don't do these things so that God will love us. We do them because he loves us. We're simply a mirror refracting God's glory to the earth. That's it. We're a broken mirror, so it kind of goes off in weird places, right? And we, we mess up, and we, we say things wrong, and we repent, and all that sort of stuff, because we're not a perfect mirror. But we are refracting God's glory on the earth, whether you like it or not. You are preaching a gospel. Know that. In everything we do, eyes are on you. Are we going to choose destruction, or are we going to prefer deliverance? Do we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? So he says, and the gospel must be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak of that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And if you're freaked out by the whole fact, some of you are like, I'm calling in sick to work. I need to figure this out real quick because I don't want to go back to work right, and preach a wrong gospel. Don't worry. It's not your gospel. It's God's. Simply tap in to the right side of the spiritual realm channel God's power. It's open. It's beaming right now. The only thing we can do is hinder the Holy Spirit. People come up and say, oh, how's how's it going for the teaching? I said, all I pray is that I don't get in the way. That's it. With all my antics and running around and moving the pulpit, all I pray is that God was not hindered in this. All right? But know that it's not your gospel. It's not your word. Some of you haven't experienced this, and it saddens me. Some of you, when you get to a point about like, well, the the Holy Spirit will speak through me. That saddens me. That saddens me. Jesus, when he left, what did he say? It is better that I go. Why? Because he's going to send the Holy Spirit. A college pastor of mine from college just wrote a book called Better Off Without Jesus. (gasps) People are like, what? I can't imagine how many people are there like, what? It's heretic, right? Just stomping down his door. Better off without Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says, you're better off that I go. Because we have the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We worship the person of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit. One God, triune, three persons. We channel that. If you have questions about this, talk with someone afterwards. The first time you're affected, the first time you allow yourself to be knocked on the back of the head by the Holy Spirit is amazing, right? Pastor Dave says, that's why he's bald back there, right? It's just like, right? That's why I have a kink in my neck. It happened to me this morning at Coffee Bean, okay? I think God works in Coffee Bean, especially potently, okay? So, might be the fourth shot. I'm not sure. But know that it's not your gospel that you're preaching, okay? It's from the Holy Spirit. Ask him, and just simply, Lord, help me. That's worship. Ask me, Ask him. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, In modern English, that's what's called a bad day, okay? And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Shall be saved. The world prefers destruction. We see it everywhere. We're gluttons for punishment. We do this to ourselves, and oftentimes God allows it. But in that tragedy, in that destruction, is a chance for deception 
or the gospel to be preached of deliverance. That is the call on the Christian life. That is the call for tomorrow morning. That's like, you guys are trying to figure out where that plays out. It plays out Monday morning. It plays out at lunch. It plays out at lunch today. And it says you will be hated. Here's the thing. If you're absolutely pretty comfortable with most people, chances are you're straying from Jesus. Again, we like to say things like, well, the, the, the safest place is in God's will. That's true from a cosmic level. That is not true from a worldly level. Do you see that? We're the safest place is in God's will. Yes, absolutely. But often how that plays out, how it manifests itself is in increased danger in the world. Okay, I read through Raul Fiedler's um, status updates on Facebook, our missionaries that just took off. Just getting pounded left and right in way more danger than he was a few weeks ago. Way more. But he's in God's will. So how do we juxtapose that with our cliche bumper sticker theology? Right? Sure, it's safe. God has everyone and he's sovereign. But know that in destruction, though the world chooses destruction, when you preach the gospel, you're countering deceit that we've seen is rampant. You're preaching the gospel of deliverance. It's the only one that has the power to save. The only one that has the power to save. Jesus says you will encounter trouble. But while the world prefers destruction, I can't say it enough. Jesus provides deliverance. We all preach. Preach Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I ask that anything that came from me would be discarded immediately. It wouldn't even be remembered. I pray that everything that came from you would score our hearts, penetrate our hearts, absorb into our hearts. I pray against any sort of condemnation that came from my teaching because I know that's not from you. I ask that people here would be encouraged, they would be emboldened to go out and preach the gospel of deliverance. The hope that we have can be the hope for others. I thank you for allowing us to be active agents, active agents in your redemptive framework. I thank you every day that you're not the God of Gnosticism, which teaches you can have nothing to do with us because you can't deal with the material. I thank you that you not only dealt with the material, you came to become material. You came into the physical world to atone for sin so that we could go forward, preach a bold gospel of deliverance to a world that prefers destruction. We thank you for your word and pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna, if you can stand, we're going to worship the Lord. Mark.